This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Steve Judge. As a professional speaker, author, and resilience coach, Steve's mission is to deliver his story that took him from the wheelchair to world champion and beyond. He explains how he fixed his broken life and the learnings he gained, which he now shares to empower people with the right mindset to go confidently on in their journey in the direction of their dreams with their gold. He's passionate about everybody experiencing the happiness and fulfillment of achieving the life that they have imagined and truly deserve. Because I just can be very authentic, very truthful, just speak my mind, and, and that's what it's all about. So I'm looking forward Absolutely. to our little chat. That to me is, is what unbroken is. Unbroken does not mean you're dead and buried and it's finished. It's a, it's similar to failure. We all see failure as, as a negative word. And if we can change our mindset and see failure as feedback, as in, oh, okay, that didn't work. Let's try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. There's no such thing as failure, only feedback. And do you know what? You know, standing on that leg again, you know, using my my bone, my actual bone. Yes, painful, but just what a. It was a moment in time. It was. It meant that I'd, I'd reached a certain goal, and my journey is all about setting goals and working towards them. And and growing my leg back, uh, and standing on it again was one massive goal that I achieved. Goal being an acronym for your goal, your opportunity, your love your dream. By that time I knew that if I wanted something enough then I would make it happen. So welcome to the show Steve, lovely to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm good. Um, I had a holiday last week Madeline and so I'm catching up on my emails and I, I struggled yesterday and I think it's because of a bit of everything. I've been in the hot sun in Tenerife, very relaxing and then I've, I've come back and I love my job. I was presenting on Monday and then on Tuesday, just catching up on my emails. And then I just thought, do you know what? I, I've had enough. I, I was almost like full of work. And I think it's a bit of everything, like I said. It's probably because it's getting darker, it's getting colder uh, and all of that. But I'm still doing what I love, which is great. Um, so, yeah, today's a good day. And I feel like I'm I'm almost there, going through my emails, like really caught up. And it's lovely to talk to you today because I find these podcasts very relaxing for me because I just can be very authentic authentic very very truthful just speak my mind and and that's what it's all about so I'm looking forward Absolutely. to our little chat great well as you know the show is called unbroken so I always start with the first question which is what does the word unbroken mean to you so unbroken means to me the word the one word is kintsugi mm -hmm. and kintsugi is a Japanese concept where uh, for those of you that don't know that the listeners, uh, it's um, if you imagine the example that you give is a vessel, a vase that gets broken and it is fixed together uh, with gold. Now, that's that's being quite blunt about it. But the message there is that once it's broken, it's not it's not the end. It's not finished. It just becomes more unique and you can make it even more unique if that is a possibility by fixing it with this beautiful gold so if you can imagine the vase fixed now and you can see the cracks in it all fixed with a beautiful line of gold and that is kintsugi now that to me is, is what unbroken is unbroken does not mean you're dead and buried and it's finished it's a it's similar to failure we all see failure as, as a negative word 
And if we can change our mindset and see failure as feedback, as in, oh, okay, that didn't work. Let's try again. Let's try again. Let's try again. There's no such thing as failure, only feedback. So that's a mindset thing. And it's the same with with something that's broken. It's like, okay, well, this is broken. So let's fix it and make it better. And I think I've always been this this way. I was thinking about this earlier today, um, because this is how I used to talk to myself when I used to do Lego as a child. I used to create this amazing masterpiece with a spaceship and some tower. And then lo and behold, it would get broken somehow. I'd, I'd, I'd fall on it or fall over or, or something went wrong. And I constantly used to tell myself, okay, Steve, we're just going to build it back, but even better, even bigger, even more creative. And so in a way, I, I guess I've always had that concept. So to when to actually use that concept uh, in my life now um, really has helped me going from, from wheelchair to world champion, which kind of blends into my my story for my car accident. If anything, it sounds like Kintsugi means it's not just repairs, it, it actually improves it because you have the extra gold as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, and, and this blends into the, the wave of resilience, which I talk about in, in my, my keynotes and also my workshops. The wave of resilience is, is very much about resilience. And, and my concept of this came through the pandemic because everybody was talking about this buzzword of resilience. You need resilience. And I thought, oh, I know what this is because mm-hmm. I've done this. I've done this through my journey. And people say, well, what is it then, Steve? I was like, oh, my gosh. OK, right. How do I explain what resilience is? And yes, you can say being knocked down seven times, getting up eight and all of that. But th- to actually understand, you have to like draw it out and, and write it. So to, to explain it here on the podcast, it's basically a wave that goes down and up. And you start with a shock, uh, some kind of uh, traumatic event, some atrocity, some, something that's really bad. You have straight after that, you have denial as in, I can't believe this is happening. And then after that, you will have anger. And it's about how you control the, these feelings, this anger feeling. Do you slam doors? Do you shout? Do you control it through sport, going to the gym? Do you do gardening? You've got to control it, not deny it. Because if you just bury it, it's just going to stay there forever. After that, you have sharing. How are you going to share how you feel, what you're going through with yourself, with others, with one person, with everyone? Are you going to write about it? Are you going to draw about it? Listen to poetry, music, uh, talk to a counsellor? I talk to your friends, but somehow you've got to share what you're going through. Now, whether you control these really well or not, you eventually will get down to the bottom of the wave, which is rock bottom. And that can, that's a really dark place. Uh, it can be sulking, but it can even be more. It can be uh, depression. Now, how long you stay in this this low period, this rock bottom period, depends on how you've controlled the sharing and the anger that's brought you there. But then after a while, the good stuff comes. You will accept the situation that you're in. You accept that that traumatic event that happened, the change that happened. And once you accept it, your serotonin kicks in. You can start seeing clearly. You start going up the wave now, up the other side. You'll take action. Action is great because then you get dopamine release. You feel good about it. You keep taking more action. And eventually you'll get higher and higher to, to moving forward. And, and, and off you go into your new life. But if you look at the wave and then look at my concept, where you end up is higher than where you started, which means that if you do the wave of resilience correctly, you can end up in a better place than where you started. And it doesn't have to be something that's happened to you. It could be you pushing yourself out of your your comfort zone, you know, going for that new education, going for that new job, going through something that you don't really want to do, but actually you do. And so you push yourself, you go down, you have the anger, the share and the rock bottom, you have the acceptance, the action, and you move on forward. So yeah, going back to the, to the vase that, that smashed, you know, that itself goes through um, a wave of resilience by 
by adding the gold, by taking time and care and attention, building that vase back together with your your love and your beauty, then you can end up with a, an amazing, unique thing that you have created. Um, and that's, that's higher than where you started. So as we were talking about traumas, can we go back to that day in 2002 when you did um, have a massive trauma, a, a car accident, which kind of happened when I read your book quite easily really, didn't it? You were just driving along, going for a little shopping, uh, going to pick something up. And yeah, how, how did it all happen? What happened? Take us back. So yeah, 2002, um, I'll, I'll keep the story as short as what I'm a speaker, so I can yes, just I, go I can hours and hours. <laughs> But yeah, I was driving along. There was a lot of rain on the road. It was a rainy day and my car skidded, lost control. And uh, I, I, I aquaplaned, I skidded on the aquaplane and it smashed into a pole. It bent the car in half. It bent my legs, crushed my legs. Um, everybody came to save me, the police, the paramedics, the uh, the ambulance. And they they took about an hour and a half to cut me free from the wreckage, drag me out along with my legs, took me, mercy dashed me to the nearest hospital and, you know, they they looked at my legs and they they did the best that they could in the operating theatre. But when I came to, you know, I, I woke up in the hospital bed looking at the ceiling. And it's around that time when the surgeon was doing his rounds. He came over to me and he, and he asked me how I was after all this traumatic event. And I said, I felt bad, you know, in a lot of pain, very disorientated, very static. And he said, look, I understand that, Mr. Judge. And, you know, you've been through a traumatic ordeal. We have managed to save both of your legs, but I'm afraid there's a good chance that you may never walk again. Mm-hmm. And I it was when I heard... You, you love sport, you know, you loved running, you started yeah. entering 10Ks from just a little 10-year-old and your whole family were into fitness, so it was, it was part of your life, wasn't it? Yeah, my, my legs were my main thing. I loved running. Running was my thing, my freedom, my independence. So when somebody said I may never walk again... Uh, my whole world was being like was being shut down, but I didn't want to let that happen. So I think there's two minds there that I could have just rolled over in bed and gone, okay, I guess I'll never walk again. But something inside me, I guess this is the fight or flight in a way. Um, I could have just rolled over in bed and given in, but I I was angry. I was really angry that that the the surgeon had the audacity to say that to me. He just literally said that he'd he'd saved my legs. And then the next breath said that, but I may never walk again. I was thinking, well, I don't understand. I've got some legs. I just need to need to do some physio and, and job done, and I can move they on. They appear to be useless in his in his uh, language, really. Yeah, because of the the injuries, you know, my my left leg had been wrenched apart at the knee. That to rebuild my knee back with ligaments from a pig. Um, my right leg was four inches short with a massive metal cage around it. It was going to be my job to extend that cage, to extend my leg by four inches, to then grow the bone back stretching the the muscles the skin the ligaments and to to get all of that and then to stand on the leg to build strength back into the bones mm-hmm. and then go through the whole learning process of learning to stand again and walk again and there um, is an was, incredible photograph in many photos in your book but one of the photos where you see the difference in the leg length yeah. and it's it's really hard to accept that just by turning these screws every day slowly slowly very incrementally that you actually grew your leg back it's a yeah. real weird phenomenon. I mean, it's amazing engineering, isn't it? I, I, absolutely. And as an engineer, you know, having this, this yes. metal cage on my leg, I used to look at it and go, wow, this is what I'm doing. But it's a good point that you raised, Madeline, about the, the twists and the bolts. So I had to twist the bolts every day, but I had to twist them just quarter of a turn, which is 0.25 of a millimetre. At that time, that's how much I was moving towards my goal, was 0.25 of a millimetre. That is minute. It is 
you know, really for me, it was I was really annoyed because I'm I'm impatient. I wanted to get this thing done. Let's move on. Let's crack on. I said, no, Mr. Judge, you can't. If you do it anymore, you're going to lose the calcium thread in your bone. So it's just 0.25 a millimeter um, four times a day. So at the end of the day, my leg would have lengthened a millimeter. So I did that. Of course I did. 100 days, job done. Can you get this cage off? And so I said, this, no. This <laughs> really taught you patience, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's about knowing your patience and, and knowing your my impatience and what you I always say impatience is not a bad thing if, as long as you use it. So if you if you're impatient about something, then then get on with it. Do it now. Do it today if, if that's what you really want. Mm-hmm. But it's it, I was being held back all the time or saying, no, Steve, you, you can't run before you can walk, quite literally. So once I'd grown, no, stretched my leg back, I said, can we get the cage off? They said, no, you've got no bone there. You've just got a massive gap with a slight calcium stream. So I said, how do you grow it? And they said, you've got to stand on your leg. I said, but you've just said there's no bone in it. And they said, there is no bone in it. So you've got to use the cage and trust the cage. And that's a real mind over matter. And this is where I think a lot of people uh, fall down, quite literally. They, They can't get their head around it. And I'm not saying it was easy for me, but I... It was in my way for me to reach my goal. That was in my way of, of getting things done. OK, I've got to stand on it. OK, I'll do that. And it was not easy. I could only do it for about 10 seconds. And then I'd sit down in a, in a heap of sweat. And it was yes, so it hard to totally do. It would totally wipe you out, wouldn't it? The exhaustion just from God. exerting 10 seconds. I, th- I think that the pain and the thought process of half my brain saying, what the hell are you doing? Stop doing it. Don't stand on your leg. It's got no bone in it. And the other half of your brain saying, this is what I've got to do. Move out of my way. I've got to do this. Let's just do 10 seconds. The next day, 11 seconds. The next day, 12 seconds. And eventually, if I say eventually, eventually I started walking on it. But over a year and a half, that's how long it took to grow this, this forges of bone back. And I say that with such anger and passion because it took ages. I kept, I kept going in to get an x-ray and saying, can we get this cage off? I said, well, well let's get an x-ray. Then have a look at it. And they said, well, the, the bone's not white. It's kind of a grey colour at the moment that's not white enough that's not strong enough you cannot take the cage off I said well how much longer they said well we don't know let's give it another four weeks and I'd be like sulking for four weeks doing the standing doing the walking doing whatever it took so the next time I went in I remember the last time I went in and they x-rayed it and they said Mr Judge it's very white We, we we're comfortable with taking the cage off now and I said are you sure? Because if you mess this up after a year and a half, if my leg goes all floppy and it just collapses and they said, no, no, we're very sure. And they, they took the cage off and they put a little plaster cast around it just to give me a bit of mental support, really. And do you know what? You know, standing on that leg again, you know, using my my bone, my actual bone. Yes, painful, but just what a it was a moment in time. It was it meant that I'd, I'd reached a certain goal. And my journey is all about setting goals and working towards them and, and growing my leg back. Uh, and standing on it again was one massive goal that I achieved. Oh, and I was rooting for you in the book. It was like, come on! But it was, <laughs> there were some parts, as I said to you earlier, that I had to literally take a deep breath, especially when they removed the bolts. You would, one would imagine you would be under an anaesthetic, a local, but no, they just literally wrenched them out. And there was a moment when the nurse said she needed some help, uh, and you just said, give me those pliers, and you just yanked them out your leg as well, at the ankle. <laughs> it was like, oh, that, it's just your determination just really shone through in those pages so then you literally sent set yourself benchmarks when you used to wander around your local country park it was at the rother valley that's it rother valley yeah i love that place so you would literally walk from one bench to another bench i don't know if that's quite how benchmark got its name but i love that (laughs) i love that expression to tell us 
what that was like, just slowly, incrementally increasing yeah. the walking power. Uh, it it was so hard. The first time I walked, this is when the cage was still on, was in the hospital mm-hmm. and just walking 10 metres and into my mum's arms and I was in tears. But I got awarded these crutches. To me, that was like my, my trophy, my medal. Mm-hmm. And through time, I, I needed to do more walking with these crutches. And my goal was to to get rid of these crutches. As soon as I got them, I thought, I don't want, I just want one. I just want none. Um, so I was walking around the house and I was walking around my estate and they said, Steve, you, you've got to keep going, keep doing the physio. You've got to walk further. So where I live is very hilly, Rother Valley, the park, very flat, it's got two lakes. I drove down there, my hand controls car, and I got out the car with my two crutches on a mission. So the, the, all the way around the park is five kilometres. That's a long way. And I didn't know how far I was going to get, but I was motivated. So I started walking. And and honestly, probably after a <clears throat> quarter of a mile, I was exhausted. I was grunting on every single step. My my leg was hurting. And I could see in front of me, there was a park bench. And I set that as my goal. It's like getting closer and closer, actually closer than the car was behind me. So I've got to get to that part. There was nothing else, to be honest. And I think this is the thing. You talk. I talk about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. When you do something like that, there was no other choice. I'd got to a certain point. People say, how do you get there? How do you get there? By not leaving yourself enough energy to get back. That's how you get there. And so I had to get to the bench. And when I got to the bench, I almost collapsed. You know, I was exhausted. I was in, in tears. And I looked at my my watch. I timed myself 34 minutes to get there. And I was absolutely gutted because 34 minutes to do half a mile was a joke for me. I used to that be a runner. Been, I was going to say that would have been your 10K time, really, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I was, and, but then I looked down, I looked down at my cage and I could see all the, the, the pins were bleeding and the, the blood was dripping down and being soaked up by my sock. And it was at that point that I realised that I'd been the best that I could be. I couldn't have gone any further that day. Uh, and, and eventually I pulled myself together, you know, recovered and, and walked all the way back to the car. And I got home, I collapsed, I had a sleepless night with muscle spasms. The next day I was completely exhausted. But the thing is, the next day, the day after that, I got up and I did it all again because that's what I needed to do. That was my goal was to grow my leg back. And I was so passionate about that, that I eventually I got past that first park bench and eventually I, I set my goals for the next park bench and then the next one and then ran the top of the lake and onto the next park bench. And this is where the story of, of benchmarking comes from. For me, it's setting those benches bit by bit. And it's just an incredible feeling to, to eventually get all the way around the park, you know, completing that goal, massive big grin on my face, still in pain. Don't get me wrong. The pain never went away. It never goes away. Even now, 20 years later, I'm still walking, running, you know, standing with pain. Um, but I, I kind of just accept it. Yeah, And you talk a lot about, first of all, your dad's words, just always be the best that you can be with no regret. But that white tiger within, you know, that Yeah, I could hear that kind of, you know, not possessing you, but just moving you as well with that determination. I mean, I just, grit, I think, would just really sum you up when I read your book. It's just total grit to feel the fear, fear the pain, and just do it anyway. So when, when did that transition start from being able to walk to thinking, I could do triathlons? I mean, that's quite a big leap, <laughs> isn't it? You know, from going, having the cage off to thinking, let me stand on my leg. Actually, I'm going to be a triathlete. Yeah. And when I'm on the stage, I, I skip that part. It's really, it's frustrating for me, but I've only got a limited time on the, K, on, the, on the stage. So to go from, I learned to walk again, 
to I started swimming, cycling, and started getting into triathlon. There's about four or five years there. Um, but I just skipped, wasn't skipped over easy. that. Your, your legs didn't assist you. It's really your upper body strength. Your legs kind of just dragged in the water. And I love the part of yeah. hospital where you sneak in in these little pull-ups on the bars, trying to get your upper body fit <laughs> because you knew that you needed the upper body strength. So you tell us how you got into the triathlons. So, yeah, I started swimming. I started cycling. I very much thought about what I could do rather than what I couldn't do. And that, again, that's a mindset thing. Uh, people keep on dwelling on what they can't do. I get it. You can't do that. Right. Let's move on and think about what you can do. So that's what I did. Swimming and cycling. But then I was looking for a new challenge. I wanted an event. I wanted to be competitive. I realized that I was competitive. So I needed some kind of competition. Went onto the Internet, found this thing called a triathlon, swimming, cycling, running. I couldn't do the run section, but I thought I could I could walk around the run section and that would that would be fine. I'd finish, call myself a triathlete. But I found this thing called a paratriathlon, triathlon for disabled people. And I thought, oh, I wonder with my injuries whether I can actually do that as a disabled athlete. And I went down to get assessed and they asked me lots of questions and they did lots of measurements and stuff. And at the end of it, they said, Mr. Judge, you are disabled. And I'm like, yes, this is great. This is great news because now I can compete as a disabled athlete. And they said, can you run? And I said, not yet, because now I had a goal. Um, and now I've got this, this bee in my bonnet about completing it, not maybe just walking it by running it. And I remember going out running. Let me get this clear. Running had been stolen from me for seven and a half years because of the accident. That thing that I loved, that thing that I loved doing as a kid, that independence. And to go out for my first run was just incredible. My mind knew what to do. My legs couldn't quite keep up. And there was so much pain. Not so much while I ran because the endorphin release and the adrenaline. But when I stopped, oh, my goodness, the, the pain that I suffered was really bad. So the next day, I couldn't run. So I thought about what cycling. And the day after that, the pain had subsided. So I, I ran again because I, I love to run. And this took me all the way up to my first power triathlon, which happened to be at the same park where I've done all my rehabilitation walking. So, you know, as I set off on the run, no, so I did the swim first in the lake that I've been walking around, the, the bike that I've been, you know, the, on the same track, and then onto the run section, the 5K, running past those park benches and seeing like an image of myself sat down in pain and in sorrow. And I just thought, that's not me anymore. Look at me now. Look at what I'm doing. I'm running. And I was running really fast. And I, I kept on running for the whole of the 5K, and across the finish line and in my category I I won and I became a British champion on that day and it was just an amazing accomplishment not only to finish the triathlon but for all the things that I've been through for being told that I may never walk again <laughs> to actually do a swim bike and a run uh just an incredible feeling and so much joy and then from there you you obviously you just started to do other competitions and other competitions and eventually you did world competitions can you tell us about those yeah, I, I mean, it's it's about grabbing those opportunities. When I became British champion, they said, congratulations, would you like to represent Great Britain? And I'm like, hell yeah, I would it's love awesome. to represent Great Britain. <laughs> Why not? But this is not going to be easy. Uh, again, not leaning on my excuses, but I had a, um, a full-time job in health and safety. I had a family with two kids, and now I wanted to be an elite athlete representing Great Britain in swimming, cycling, and, and running. But that was my goal. This is my opportunity, which I grabbed with both hands. You know, my early morning swimming and then working and then running at lunchtime and then working and then cycling in the evening, pulling myself towards this goal of becoming a world champion. I had to become a British champion again, European champion. But eventually that took me all the way out to Beijing 2011, competing in the world championships against other power triathletes from around the world. Uh, we did the swim, the bike, onto the run section, 
Fringes gold, and you know, to celebrate the gold medal is amazing. But my gold is what I talk about now is gold being an acronym for your goal, your opportunity, your love, your dream. And I think on that day, I really accomplished all of those things, getting that that world championship gold medal. Just an amazing feeling. Oh, it must be amazing. What I also loved um, was your uh, the way that you used to train and kind of at work didn't hundred percent support you. So you used to kind of do your stuff before work, run at lunchtime, and then have this little cubicle in the toilets where you would have a quick wash. And I was a runner, don't really run so much anymore. And I used to go out at lunchtime with someone from HR, we'd run around Glasgow green. And I always had this fear was, we did have a shower, I'm naked at my work. If something happens right now in this moment, I am I'm naked at my work. If the fire alarm yeah. goes, I would be the one out in the towel. So that just part just it made me <laughs> giggle and I could really, yeah, really uh I resonated with me. Yeah. So but it what is interesting, I think people won't really understand, is the lack of support. Even though you are an elite athlete, you know, the lack of sponsorship, the lack of um, you know, everything you're not really supported so much. You really have to fight hard to get the, the sponsorships or to get, you know, to do all the competitions, to fund yourself, to fly there. It's, it's not so easy, is it? No, no, it, it's really hard. And it was really hard when I it came down to training. So I needed to train six days a week in the evenings. That's generally when I trained. If I could squeeze it in the daytime, that was fine. And sometimes I had to make the decision of, do I go out for a run to get faster, stronger, more endurance? Or do I sit at my computer and find sponsorship and get some money? Because if I can't find sponsorship, I can't get a plane ticket to go and compete. And I'm thinking, yeah, but if I want to compete, I've got to be fast and have strength and endurance. And then, yeah, but I need the money. And it's really like, you know, yin or yang, which one do I do? And sometimes one had to suffer more than the other. And that's such a shame. Um, You know, again, it it didn't stop me. It didn't lean, I didn't lean on my excuses, but it was definitely a challenge and it would have been so much better if people, you know, have been able to to support me more, and sometimes it's not all about the money. It's, it really isn't. Sometimes it's yeah, just about people. People would assume that you know, being part of the GB team, you would have had your bike bought for you, for example. You know, you have to go yeah. even to buy. I mean, I, I do karate, so I know my Senzi's daughter was uh, qualified for the Olympics, and I know that it's the same. You know, we have to support them all, and they get their own flights and all their own kit. So. You know, I think people would be surprised to just think it all lands at your feet when you're an elite athlete. Yeah, it's one of those things that people don't see. And I think it's one of those those images that I have in my new book. And if you imagine this, you've got the podium, you've got the, the, the bronze, silver and gold, and they're standing on the podium, first, second and third. And people are going, wow, that's amazing. It's incredible. What they don't see is, is what goes on underneath that. And that's all the blocks that they're standing on, the foundation of the failures, the sponsorship, the early mornings, the late nights, the, the tough training sessions, the injuries, the warming up, the warming down, all of these things. And it's not just in sport. We're talking about everything here. You know, I'm running my own business as, as you are as well, Madeline. And people see me on the stage and go, wow, what a great job you've got. I said, look, do you know, honest, I'm living the dream. It's brilliant. What they don't see is me sat at home in front of my computer day after day, hour after hour, doing the lead generation, doing the marketing, doing the networking, doing the admin, all the stuff that I actually don't like doing. I'll be honest there. I love standing on the stage and speaking. I don't want to do the other bits, but that's part of it. And it's the same with being an elite athlete. I love the competing bit. Didn't really like you know, finding the sponsorship or getting, you know, struggling to get the support, but that's what you have to do. And I guess it goes on in everybody's lives. But what we shouldn't do is compare our lives to other people. We never know what goes on behind closed doors or, you know, the the bits that we don't see, especially with social media. You know, we compare their outsides to our insides. 
and and that's something that we we definitely shouldn't do and we're going to be careful not to do that yeah and um you, you spoke about uh, the work before and how there wasn't so much um support and actually they made you redundant but in some ways that allowed you now to be this motivational speaker you took a job with the scouts which only lasted for a few years but then you was like well what do i do now and so you wonder if you were still in that role of health and safety if you would have become a motivational speaker um uh, yeah who knows it's one of those things it's one of those forks in your life that you just never know what would have happened if the accident hadn't have happened if i hadn't got made redundant um i think eventually i would have i would have gone out of it but it, what's what's intrigued me now is now i'm encouraging other people that if they're not happy about their work their relationship whatever their health their fitness do something about it just don't don't wait to get made redundant maybe stand up and you know you know shout louder and say look this is what i want to happen else i'm gonna leave and find something better and you can find something better again this is not an easy thing to do but it's something that you definitely can do. you can take control it's all about controlling the controllables um, I made it into a good thing. We're going back to the vase and the cracks and the kintsugi. By being made redundant, I made it into a good thing. I got an amazing job with the Scout Association for three years. From that, it gave me a lot of confidence about um, doing more presentations and everything and talking about my journey. And so when that finished, um, a lot of people said to me, because I've been there for three years, they said, Steve, what are you going to do now? And I said, almost like in a Superman pose, I said, I, I'm going to be a motivational speaker. And they're like, wow, that sounds amazing, Steve. And they said, Steve, how are you going to do that? And I said, still in the Superman pose, of course. I said, I I haven't got a clue. I had no idea <laughs> how I was going to be a motivational speaker. But by that time, I knew that if I wanted something enough, then I would make it happen. And one of the first things I needed to do was realize that, you know, you can't do these things alone. One of the things you need to do is find out who your golden gang is. And they're the people that are going to support you, going to encourage you. And we talked about, you know, lack of support, which I've had in the past um, with some people. But now I, I joined this thing called the PSA, uh, the yeah. Professional Speaking Association, where we're both Which members of and where I we've met. from, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is a great place. Going to the PSA, you, you're, you're now entering a room of 30 people every month. And these people are speakers, professional speakers, earning money, running a business from just speaking, running workshops. I'm like, wow, this is great. I've never met so many people that are authors that have written a book or planning to write a book. It was just a whole new different different type of people, kind of my tribe. And and I got so inspired from those people. I entered the, the Speaker Factor competition and that inspired me even more. And I thought, I definitely want this to, to happen. And that was six years ago. And look at me now. I'm, I'm still running my business. It's really successful. I'm doing what I love. I'm helping people, inspiring others, motivating more. I'm empowering them. And that's important for me, definitely. I don't think there's anything, if you didn't put your mind to it, that you couldn't do, actually, because you have such determination and such an amazing outlook. And it was, you know, like when I read a book, I take a lot of notes. So there were a couple of the things that you said which really stood out to me. One of them was, I stopped saying, why me? And instead I'd say, try me, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. And the other one which really jumped out was, achievers see what they want to happen and defeaters see what they fear. So everything is really where we put our attention, isn't it? Yeah, that last quote is what my new book is about. It's very yeah. much about, but I, I found, done some research and um, out of the population, 80% of people fear uh, or, or they focus on what they want to avoid. So they say things like, I don't want to be unhealthy. I don't want to be fat. I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to be poor. All of these negative things, instead of focusing on what they want to achieve, as in, I want to be fit. 
I want to be healthy. I want to be successful. I want to be popular. And all of these, these things, only 20% of people actually do that. Focus on the, the same thing. It's just the way you, you interpret it. So only 20% of people focus on what they want to achieve. And those 20% of people end up being high achievers. So th- here it is. You know, if you want to become a high achiever, if you want to achieve in your life, then start focusing on what you want to achieve. It sounds simple. I know it's not easy. My book will help you. Not that I'm trying to plug my book, but that's the main reason that I I wrote my book was because people said, how did you do that, Steve? I said, look, I I know the answer. I can't just give it in one sentence. And so eventually in March next year, I'll be able to give them the book and say, that's how you do it. It's five winning concepts. So you need to have a vision, a golden vision. You need to know why you're doing it, your golden soul. You need to have your golden gear, which is how you're going to get there. You need to have your golden gang, which we've talked about, so they can support you. And the last one is you need to have your golden hour. You need to put a deadline, a line in the sand, a benchmark, and work towards what you really want to achieve. With those five concepts, those golden concepts, you can complete the golden map and achieve the gold in your life, your goal, your opportunity, your love, and your dream. And it's it's a beautiful thing, and I'm very excited about it, as you can tell. And really. <laughs> and well, they, they do say, you know, if you think you're wrong, then you're right and if you think you're right then you're right as well so everything is is our attitude that we bring to life so just before we um finish off i just want to talk about your your go in your little coin that you wear around your neck and the story about that because i do love it because it's all about being aware of your vision and seizing your opportunities can you tell us about that please yeah so the the going around my neck is a is a five yen coin so i went traveling around the world uh, when i was in my teens working as I as I travelled, ended up in Australia, floods came down, stuck in a hostel with a Japanese traveller. I helped him to speak English. And after a couple of days, he the, the floods dispersed and he gave me this gift. And it's a five yen coin. He says, Steve, this is a uh, a five yen coin that's called a Goen. And Goen stands for good karma. And you will receive good karma, but only if you're aware of your vision and you seize opportunities. Now I didn't know too much about it then, and I I, I did a, I went into the outback that the next day, and and I achieved, and I, I kind of understood what he meant, but it kind of came more to fruition just before my first power triathlon. I found it in the loft, and I remembered the story about constantly being aware of my vision and seizing those opportunities. That the ne- that that same day I went down to the internet, I found the, the triathlon, which set me on my new journey. I now wear this every day, and it reminds me every day. To, to be aware of my vision. I'm always asking myself, Steve, what do you want? What, what are you doing? Where's, where's your journey taking you? I have a vision board, so I know where my journey is taking me. Um, but yeah, and grabbing those opportunities. And the opportunities come from, from your RAS, your particular activating system. If you see it, you can conceive it, you can believe it, and you can see those opportunities out in the world. So it's about grabbing hold of them with both hands and doing something about it. And so that's what I'm going to do. Uh, the going is very special to me. One of my goals is to actually find the Japanese guy that gave me this coin. So I'd love to go to Japan. Uh, I'll put this out to your your listeners. If anybody's got any contacts in Japan, please pass them on to me. I'm building a network out. It's going to be a a big task. And once I'm out there, we're going to blitz social media and find out if I can find the guy. The guy's name is called Taka. Um, He lives in Japan and he gave me the coin in 1996. I mean, it sounds impossible. (laughs) I like gold. It's a big challenge. Yeah, I actually think you will find it. And I'll speak to you after because I do have connections with Japan. (laughs) But yeah, Uh, but it's a wonderful message for everyone just to be aware of what you want and how you're going to do it. So I think that's a great place to end our interview. So thank you so much, Steve, for taking time out today. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. 
Yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it as well. I love talking about my journey. And if I can help anybody out there, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, then I'm all over social media. Uh, so they can do that. Visit my website, www.steve-judge.co.uk. But please reach out. And if I can help you achieve the gold in your life, then that's what I want to do. That's my that's my gold. Unbroken healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five star rating. It really helps us get this important and life changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. Play Unbroken, the podcast, with Madeline Black.